You know, it's hard not to go to the grocery store and walk out and shake your head every, you know, I mean, it feels like every day or any time you go in there, rather, you're looking at some product. I myself, buy a, I'm on a restricted health-related diet, so I buy the same stuff all the time, and I'm very familiar with prices. And, yeah, it's shocking. I remember Mike Levy talking to me a couple of weeks ago saying it was $12 a for a pound of grapes. I think we've all experienced that. Food inflation is the one that's been the most persistent when we get the CPI reports. That's that's why I'm so pleased to have with me Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He is the director of uh, Canada's foremost uh, research into uh, the whole food issue, the broader food issue, the Dalhousie Agri-Food Laboratory. Uh, Dr. Charlebois, thanks so much for finding time with us. My pleasure, Mike. Let, let me start with this, and I, and I'm, I know you you know you're forced to give information all sorts of places, but I'm going to start with this. You know, when you look at you know, food inflation, it isn't a Canada story. I mean, I was looking at the United Kingdom because I was over there recently at, what, 18% in their food inflation? Germany, 13.4%, France, 13+, plus. Italy. My point being, of course, that food inflation is everywhere. So I, I have a little problem with these sort of localized, uh, you know, talk about, well, it's got to be greed. And now I appreciate, by the way, I'm going on and on, but I appreciate that that isn't helped out by the bread fixing price scandal either. But at the same time, it's obviously a bigger issue. Oh, absolutely. It's a global phenomena. And I think the data points to, to, to that argument for sure. Uh, actually, we, we are lucky as Canadians. We actually have uh, still have one of the lowest food inflation rates in the world. Uh, right after the United States. And so because of that pressure, we are expecting that food inflation rate to to drop even more as we finish 2023. But uh, you raise a good point, Mike. A lot of people will put uh, food inflation and the bread scandal in the same basket. But there are two different things, I, I believe. Uh, on the one side, with food inflation, you are looking at an industry coping with very volatile market conditions. On the other hand, you're looking at companies breaking the law. And uh, and, and really, that's a non-starter for everyone, I think, in Canada. Or it should be a non-starter for everyone in Canada. We shouldn't tolerate companies breaking the law. And I actually do believe that we're too soft on companies breaking the law. As we look at the United States, some executive has actually gone to jail uh, fixing Salmon prices, for example, just a few years ago, that was a really famous case. And here in Canada, we actually uh, provide some executives with immunity uh, that actually allows them to continue. And so this is really troubling. And, and if we want more competition in this country, we actually have to get our act together when it comes to crimes. Uh, a company like Little and Aldi wouldn't be interested in Canada if we actually allow price fixings to occur. And I actually do believe, despite the fact that I believe that greedflation is a mirage, it's a false argument, I actually do believe that the food industry has a price fixing culture problem. We, we've just thinking of competition. We've had a couple of reports out looking into grocery prices. I mean, this has been an issue, you know, uh, you know, number one issue for many Canadians for over a year and a half at this point. What did they find? Can you sum up what, you know, full-scale investigations into 
the grocery industry, grocery pricing. What did they find? Uh, you know, I, I know it's a big question, but if you can sum it up for us so people can walk away at least and say, these people spent the time on it and they, they said X should happen or did happen. Well, so we have to go back to uh, 2001, if you can believe it. So for uh, allegedly for 14 years, uh, seven companies actually colluded uh, fixing prices uh, in the bakery section, essentially. Uh, and so you have seven companies of the of those seven companies. We not, we had two companies come forward back in 2015. Uh, so 14 years after to the Competition Bureau, that's when they receive immunity. And those two companies were Loblaws and, and uh, Western Bakeries. Uh, that was in 2015. For two years, the investigation was ongoing without other parties knowing about it. In 2017, Loblaws came out in December, basically telling all Canadians that this was going on for 14 years and they threw everyone else under the bus. And, uh, and that would be uh, Giant Tiger, Walmart, Metro, uh, and uh, Empire. Uh, those are the, and of course, uh, the other uh, bakery is Canada Bread, which, uh, by the way, just admitted guilt just a few weeks ago. But that was under a, a different uh, ownership. It was Maple Leaf Foods, which owned Canada Bread for 14 years. And so, Grippo, uh, Grupo Bimbo, which is out of Mexico, owns Canada Bread. They admitted guilt, paid $50 million uh, as a fine. And and now what we're wondering is whether or not Maple Leaf Foods, which is a giant in the meat sector, whether or not uh, there's some price fixing going on in that section of the grocery store as well. Because there was an email that was actually released by the Globe and Mail showing, an email written by Michael McCain himself, showing that it is possible, it is quite possible that other sections of the grocery store may have, may have been affected by this price-fixing culture. Okay, so let's, let's go to today. As you say, that's not the same as what's driving some of these uh, price increases that we're all experiencing at this point. And I'll give just a couple of quick examples. One is, you know, the Russian grain deal is over right now. Well, I think consumers can expect, it took, a, a, you know, off the top of my head, it took a couple of days to ripple through to some of the commodity markets, but it looks like it has. And, you know, that's not good news if we're looking for, uh, you know, lower prices. Uh, you know, if we're going to have higher wheat prices or corn, and of course, then we have feed for cattle that pushing meat prices up you know it's not a good news story at all no i must say i was a bit surprised uh early in the week uh, on monday when the deal ended i was actually expecting commodity prices to skyrocket it didn't happen so uh to me uh markets uh were telling me two things either uh the end of the deal was already priced in or or Perhaps there's something else going on uh, on the side that perhaps would allow Ukraine to uh, export grains regardless. And of course, uh, the Black Sea is a big, big deal, but you can also export by train. And unfortunately and regrettably, uh, Ukrainians' agriculture is not what it used to be because of the invasion. Yes. A year and a half ago, uh, the Ukrainian agriculture uh, – was able to feed 400 million people. Now today, uh, when you look at, say, wheat and corn exports, so Ukrainian, Ukraine is actually responsible for about 
of global corn exports and about 5% of global wheat exports. So it's not, those numbers are, are much lower than what, what they used to be. However, uh, those numbers are still significant. And, and, and now we've seen two nights of bombing, 60,000 tons of grains were destroyed as a result. And I think markets are reacting to that specifically. Mm. And that's why corn futures are up 10%. And wheat futures are up 15% right now. And that could actually impact us eventually. Uh, let me go to the other thing we alluded to earlier, which is, uh, you know, the wage increase. I mean, we've seen it across the board. doesn't matter where we're looking. And, of course, it's understandable that people's standard of living is falling, you know, as their prices escape them. But what impact will that have? I mean, you're seeing several, you know, major grocers having to pay more or there's been labor disputes over wages. Won't that ripple through to higher prices at some point? This is the most surprising thing uh, over the last 18 months. Uh, one would think that because of food inflation, people are actually spending more at the grocery store. That is not the case. Uh, at least that's not what the data is telling us. What the data is telling us is that Canadians are actually spending less at the grocery store right now. And, and the reason is pretty simple. Everyone who would have a mortgage on a variable rate or have renewed their mortgage recently uh, or anyone renting uh, and would have moved recently, they're probably paying more to make sure they keep a roof over their heads. And those are two competing necessities of life, shelter and food. And, And which one is easier to trade down with? Food, for sure. You can actually show up at the grocery store and buy cheaper brands. With shelter, you would have to move or get someone else to move in with you uh, or, or downgrade. It's much more work, much more work than with food. And that's why I think right now Canadians are retreating with their wallets. They're, show, they're still showing up at the grocery store or a store because dollar store sales have actually gone up 15%. They're actually saving to make sure they have some sort of shelter for, for them. When you look at individuals, and you have posted this, and I'll just remind people to go to The Food Professor uh, on Twitter, The Food Professor. Uh, you know, I'm looking at some of these things you put up, and I certainly, uh, you know, jaw-dropping when you look at since just January, you've got pork shoulder cuts up uh, 92%, grapes up 42%, as I was alluding to earlier, you know, or squash or orange juice, uh, you know, and everyone can throw in their examples because they'll have personal shopping habits and it seems even higher than some sort of uh, what the latest 9.1% you know June inflation uh, for grocery prices i mean it seems much greater than that at least and it looks like it's uh, meat and vegetables are the culprits here yeah absolutely well you know when you look at the cpi report uh there's always a new store every month uh, a few months ago uh, bakery and vegetables were pushing our food inflation rate higher. Now, it's, now culprits are fruits and, and meat products. The meat story was actually highly predictable because uh, back in March, if you remember, Mike, I was actually on Twitter saying to people, buy beef now. Yeah. <laughs> buy beef now because beef will be more expensive later. Well, that's where we're at. We're, we're later now. And that's why beef prices are really making the meat counter more expensive. And we don't see that changing anytime soon, unfortunately. So if you're a meat lover, you know, pork is probably a better bet for you. Or chicken actually is more stable than it used to about six months ago. With fruits, 
fruits is a hard one to explain. Uh, I actually do think that uh, some some of it has to do with uh, with droughts all over the place. It's been harder to grow. Uh, even in Canada, in June, you start to get fruits from uh, domestic farmers. But let's face it, farmers will charge a premium at the very beginning of the season. So I suspect that really uh, grocers and farmers wanted to uh, get consumers to pay a premium early on in the season. And and who knows what's going to happen in July and August, but that's probably why it happened. Because typically with fruits, the currency is a big deal. The currency could drive that section of the grocery store higher in terms of prices but the currency has been a non-issue for a very long time now. Uh, what a great point you've just made, though, that, you know, when we're looking at these, I think people get too simplistic uh, when they start looking at why are grocery prices higher. And it, as you just alluded to, you know, a cur- the currency can play a big part in that also. I mean, because commodities are traded in U.S. dollars, you know, major commodities are, p- besides domestic issues like higher wages. Uh, and I don't know, uh, you tell me, does the greedflation uh, people who are proponents of that, do they include uh, wage increases for their workers who obviously are facing the same constraints the rest of us are? The the reality, Mike, is that there's a new baseline out there when it comes to cost management in the food industry. It's costing more to do anything in the food business right now, anything. Uh, wages have gone up. Packaging costs have gone up. You know, consumers are pretty demanding when it comes to safety, food safety. And so regulations have actually made things more expensive. And I, I think all of these changes have been, uh, to a larger extent, underappreciated economically. And so those are pressures that have to be managed by food companies. And at the end of the day, consumers are saying, well, you know, Galen Weston or grocers in general are responsible for inflation. And, and that, that is too much of a simplistic argument in my view. Uh, let's come to a, a couple of things within that. Um, as I say, we've had the Competition Bureau look into grocery prices. They didn't come back with the greedflation story. Uh, you know, but if you had a magic wand and you said, here's some things that we could do to you know, create a str- – you know, it's not to do that will have an impact tomorrow morning or next week. I think there's some things consumers can do. We'll talk about that because you've written about it. But you know, broadly speaking, uh, I know that you have written about the lack of competition within the grocery sector itself. You know, that we don't have enough stores involved. We don't have enough people battling for our dollars. Uh, is that, would that be your number one thing, sort of, if you could change the landscape? My, my, my number one concern when it comes to competition is the fact that Canada remains a highly unattractive market to invest in. It's a, it's a complicated market. When you look at it, you have 10 provinces uh, using different regulations. Uh, our, our fiscal policies are very, very heavy uh, when it comes to taxing this and taxing that. Uh, there's lots going on here. So for a national player to uh, to be successful is very difficult. Talk to Target. I mean, Target will tell you it's very yeah. difficult. They actually came in and left. We lost Lowe's. We lost Sears. Nordstrom just recently. It's really tough. Walmart, when they came into the game market back in 1994 after buying Walco, they didn't open up 400 stores. 
They open up about 20 stores and progressively learn about the Canadian market. And they did very well, and they're still doing very well. Same for Costco. And so I, I think it's important to recognize that interprovincial barriers, fiscal policies are just not making Canada an attractive place to invest in. So that's one thing we need to recognize. Secondly, it's the discipline within the food industry. Let's face it, there are a couple of players who do really control uh, rules in general. I talk to any food manufacturers, they'll tell you. I mean, it boils down to Loblaws and Walmart. They have a lot of influence. If you, you, you either make it or break it in the food industry, uh, depending on how you do with Loblaws and Walmart. And that needs to change a little bit. And that's why the Code of Conduct, I think, is a key uh, initiative that could actually help. It would discipline the market. And for you and I, Mike, as consumers, what would happen over time is that we would actually see more options, uh, more variety at the grocery store, and, of course, more competition. And I'm not thinking about urban centers. Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, Montreal, they're doing just fine. It's, I'm talking about rural economies, rural communities, uh, where they've seen one grocery store close or that we've seen many, uh, many banners basically eliminating options by buying land and, and making sure that there are no more options for, say, 10 to 15,000 people. And that tend to actually raise prices, unfortunately. So those are the markets that we need to look into. In the United States, Kroger is trying to buy Albertsons. And let me tell you, Congress is very granular about how this merger could impact competition in the United States. They're actually looking at, say, you know, New Haven, Connecticut, and they're trying to figure out whether or not consumers there will be impacted negatively or positively by seeing one less player in the market. So that's kind of the approach that the Bureau should should take for the future. Uh, your point about and making a distinction between the urban centers and the rural centers, I, I just think is key and you don't hear it. You know why? Because I think the major news outlets are centered in the urban centers and their own personal experience there. And uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I only have anecdotal evidence because we don't get a breakdown from StatsCan, for example, on the different, you know, those kind of geographical changes. But boy, anecdotally, uh, I've got friends living in small centers. Uh, you know, I know some people in Calgary in a small, you know, a couple of smaller towns. It, you're, I, I don't think I can emphasize enough what you're, you've just said. That they're getting well, killed Mike, as consumers. I mean, case on point. I mean, where's so we we've done the work as a lab in terms yes. of where which city actually offers the most expensive food basket in the country. The number one market is close to you. It's Victoria, BC. Why? It's an <laughs> island. It's an <laughs> island. Number two, Halifax. Why? Because Halifax is far away from everything. Yeah, and so. That, those are the realities that I think we need to appreciate uh, and, and making sure that some of these markets do have more competition. Well, and it's, it's, it's a, a very important view, but it's more nuanced. I mean, I got the impression, as I said, that the people pushing the greedflation, they want that to be true. They want it to be that simple, you know, for whether it's satisfying some ideological approach that they have or ideological need, but they want it to be. And my worry about that, when you focus on the wrong variable, you're not going to make progress. 
you know, we're not going to have an improve, as you say, prices can drop for other reasons, but it is such a complicated market, whether we're talking commodities when that talks currency, whether we're talking the lack of competition and as your distinction, you know, urban rural, it's a huge list. I mean, this isn't a simple thing. And as I started with, look at it across the world, look at it across the Western world. I mean, boy, in Canada, that 9.1% in June looks awful good to somebody sitting in the UK at 18.3%. That's right. You know, the greedflation campaign has been has largely been successful for one simple reason. Many Canadians have forgotten why companies exist in the first place. Companies exist to make a profit, to support everything we see in our economy, schools, roads, hospitals, everything. It creates wealth. We have lots of wealth in Canada due to companies. Yeah. Uh, but it, it seems as though a lot of Canadians have actually forgotten about that, and and profiteering or making a profit uh, seems uh, by some uh, appears to be almost uh, s- s- devilish uh, or shouldn't be allowed. And and in my view, it's it's really unfortunate that we've come this far. I, it, there's always been a delicate balance between profits. And food business, like being in the food business, the morality of making money has always been there for sure. Whether or not the food inflation rate is at 0% or 10%, doesn't matter. It's always been there. Uh, And now it's much more obvious because the food inflation rate is so high. Yeah. And I mean, that's my life here on Money Talks is to try and explain these relationships. Like you don't want profitable corporations or you want to raise taxes. Have you looked at your pension holdings yet? Have you looked at your, you know, Canada pension holdings? Can you describe to me how we're better off without a profitable corporate sector? When I'm talking about, as you just did, healthcare, education, everything that we sort of put in that big basket of social uh, contract with the governments. I, I mean, yeah, it's astounding. But that's back to my point when you're dealing with ideologies, uh, reality. Every, every day, Mike, I... I, I... Every day, Mike, I actually get people sending me emails, pictures of similar products being sold on the same street, the same city, the same day, two different prices. And I'm going, wow, this person absolutely does not understand uh, food economics and strategy and business. I mean, do you want ham to be sold the same price everywhere in Canada? If that's the case, we don't want the same economy. Uh, let's very quickly, because I, I, I know your time's short, but and I appreciate you finding the time for us. Uh, you just reminded me, I have on a big note here, shrinkflation. Now, StatsCan says they, <laughs> they look at it. Uh, again, haven't we all experienced, you know, I'm looking, at, I'm looking at a beverage and going, is that a thimbleful or two thimbles full, you know, for the same yeah. price? Uh, you know, I, 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 those two bite sizes are now <laughs> one bite yeah, for sure. Or very small jaws, you know, and I, I, I appreciate <laughs> it would be very difficult for StatsCan to measure that, but we should also understand the difficulty in measuring that, again, suggests that maybe that food inflation rate's a little higher than they're reporting. I'm concerned, you know, because really, uh, I think there's something going on there. uh, Because, as you know, Mike, a lot of social programs we have in Canada will use the CPI Mm -hmm. as as a measure to support people 
who do need the support. Yeah. And uh, if food inflation is uh, underestimated in Canada because that scan doesn't really recognize the influence of shrinkflation, uh, it means a lot of Canadians that don't get the support they need. And that's really a big problem yeah. to me. The other issue, of course, is transparency. I've always actually believed that shrinkflation is fair game yes. in, an, in, a, in an economy like ours. I mean, it's, it's business. Why would you actually want to increase the price of your product uh, and lose market share? It's a strategy. Yeah. And let's actually recognize sh- sh- shrinkflation as such. However, I've always believed that the food industry sees shrinkflation as a taboo subject. And I think we're beyond that because of social media and people taking pictures all the time. Yeah. I think companies need to be honest uh, I know a reporter I was talking to earlier this week was telling me that uh, he spoke, he connected with 53 companies uh, which have shrinkflated some products. Only 11 uh, got back to him. 11. It means a lot of companies are avoiding the issue and yes. they shouldn't. Uh, just one cl- last quick thing. Individuals, so what can individuals do in terms of, I mean, is it as simple as just saying, why don't you shop and make sure you've reviewed what's available grocery-wise, even if it's a limited selection of competition? And as you said, in the rural area, this may not be possible. But shop yeah. and compare and, and look for, I mean, I find myself looking for specials all the time. You know, when I find a special, I go for it. <laughs> you know, is, it, is, oh, yeah. is there more than that or is that pretty much what we should be focused on? Oh, it's it's very much about that. I was actually visiting a, a food bank uh, here in Montreal uh, today, and uh, they're getting less food. Why? Because people are more careful. Yeah, uh, they're buying those enjoy tonight deals. There's less waste. So inflation is not all bad. I know it's very difficult for a lot of people, but we actually believe we're wasting less food. And so I certainly would encourage people to look for those deals. If you're not, if food safety, I mean, food safety, the food safety culture in Canada is very strong, but there are really good deals out there. If you really look for them, consumers have more power than they think. Um, feeling, Feeling that you're at the mercy of a massive industry, I think is the wrong mindset to have right now. You are in control. If there is a product that you think is too expensive, just walk away. There's probably another substitute in that same store that is going to be affordable for you and it's going to fit your budget as well. So don't feel vulnerable. You do have a lot of power, regardless if you have access to one store, three stores or 10 stores, it doesn't matter. Well, as they say, there's so much to talk about in this topic. And as you're saying that, I've got a million more questions, but I want to respect your time. And I just want, I also want to invite people to go to the Food Professor. So it's easy, at Food Professor, uh, you know, on Twitter, for example. Uh, there's so many other things, uh, podcasts. There's, uh, of course, being the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University keeps you busy. And I'll leave with one positive note with you because you've already put out the forecast uh, gosh, months ago, seven, eight months ago, saying we will still edge further lower as we get into the end of the year. We're not going to get to where people want to be, but we are at least on the right track in terms of edging lower. So just remind people what your forecast is for the end of this year for food, you know, food inflation. Yeah. So in December, we actually published a Canada's food price report along with the University of Guelph, the University of Saskatchewan and uh, UBC. 
And uh, uh, our forecast was that we would land, we would actually end the year with a food inflation rate of anywhere between five to seven percent. And uh, and we're still very comfortable with that forecast. Well, that would be good news, at least better news. Let's call it better news that the the rate of increase in the prices we pay at the store will at least slow down a little bit. Sylvain Charlebois, director, of course, uh, at Dalhousie Agri-Food Lab. Thanks so much for finding time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure.